It's 7 a.m. on the West Coast, 10 a.m. on the East Coast, 3 p.m. in London, 12 midnight in New South Wales and Sydney, Australia, and in Malaysia, it is 1984. I'm Jay Sheldon, and I'm not wearing pants. I haven't worn pants in over a year now. Well, that's not true. Once or twice. <laughs> Once or twice, but not very damned often. Happy Monday. Uh, Monday. Yes. Ah, uh, we love Mondays. Welcome in. Welcome to the show. It's I'm Not Wearing Pants with me. If you are listening on the podcasts, thank you so much for listening and thank you for subscribing. Really appreciate that. That uh, helps us drive the numbers up. And uh, you can find us if you are on the video live stream right now. Be sure you do what hundreds of other people have done. Check out uh, iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Google Podcasts, Radio Public, Stitcher, TuneIn. We're everywhere you get your podcasts from. Just look us up. I'm not wearing pants. And subscribe and uh, download. And we really appreciate that. If you want to help support the stream, of course, you can find me on Patreon. Uh, just look up Jay Sheldon on Patreon.com. You can help out there. And uh, yeah, we've got some special offers too, by the way, on our Patreon account. So check that out if you are so inclined. We have uh, lots coming up tonight, including at the end of our, uh, of our show, the beginning of a brand new book from 1894. It is Rudyard Kipling's the Jungle Book. Yeah! Can't wait. Ah, oh, man, this is going to be so much fun. I've never read The Jungle Book. Of course, I saw the, the movie when I was a kid, the animated cartoon film. And uh, there has since been at least one, if not more, remakes. I know there was a... Uh, uh, Joanne, hey, welcome. Thank you very much. Thanks for the like. <laughs> nice to see you, Joanne. Miss you a lot. Uh, yes, yeah, so we're going to start The Jungle Book tonight, and uh, trust me, as we found out with a lot of these books we've read since the very beginning of our streaming, uh, what, 80 shows ago? Wow! Um, the books are most of the time very different from the films, and you are going to find out the same thing is true of The Jungle Book. It's still fascinating. We just got through with The Little Prince uh, last stream on Saturday night. What a great way to wrap up. The Little Prince was an amazing book. We've done The Wonderful Wizard of Oz, Alice in Wonderland, The Velveteen Rabbit, Peter Pan. And now we begin The Jungle Book. Fair warning, though, these chapters are really long. So in some cases, we might wind up actually splitting a chapter into two shows because they are long, but they're fascinating. Rudyard Kipling is an amazing author, and uh, The Jungle Book is an amazing book. So I hope you will uh, enjoy that. A lot of fun. Uh, right. Um, Miko's doing well. And uh, a matter of fact, at the moment, she is sitting, lying on the bed, stretched out with the air con blowing on her. And uh, so, yeah, she's got the air con all to herself in the bedroom. Very nice. Lucky. And we discovered uh, this week that Miko loves jackfruit. Nanka, um, as we say here in Malaysia, it's jackfruit. Uh, likely, if you're in other parts of the world besides Southeast Asia, you probably don't know what jackfruit is. It's amazing. It's like candy growing on a tree. It is incredible. Locus Pocus, hi, welcome to the stream. Thank you for, uh, for popping in. Um, jackfruit, I suddenly realized, I've got, I got two weird things that I truly believe in my heart of hearts. It's a Jay Sheldon conspiracy, conspiracy theory. But I really, really believe this is true. If you think about it, do a blind taste test, you'll agree with me. Here's the first one since we're talking about jackfruit. Jackfruit has to be where juicy fruit gum got its flavor from. Because if, and again, I don't think juicy fruit gum is available here in Malaysia. I don't think I've ever seen it. 
but it's, or at least it was huge in the U.S. Juicy Fruit has a very particular flavor. It's a yellow package. In fact, it's kind of the color of jackfruit, yellowy-orange. And um, jackfruit tastes exactly, exactly like Juicy Fruit. Check it out. Try some Juicy Fruit. Try some jackfruit. They're the same thing. Anyway, we found out Miko loves jackfruit. And I looked it up. It is okay. It's safe in small quantities for the dog. So that's a good thing. Yeah, but she uh, she loves it. She can't get enough. If she hears, I bought some prepackaged. They've already taken it out and put it in the in the little plastic container. The moment she hears that lid come off, boom, I turn around. She's standing there looking up at me with those puppy dog eyes. Can I have some? And of course, I give in and give her up. A little bit. Okay. Uh, okay, a second... Second Jay Sheldon flavoring conspiracy theory, Dr. Pepper. Again, I don't ever remember seeing Dr. Pepper here in Malaysia. Maybe in some of the like village grocer that carries a lot of imported goods, but I don't believe Dr. Pepper's available in Malaysia, which kind of sucks because I loves me some Dr. Pepper. <coughs> Excuse me. Anyway, here's... I have held this Jay Sheldon conspiracy theory forever. And I know I'm right. Don't argue with me. Dr. Pepper, where does it get its flavor from? You won't believe me when I tell you. But I swear to you, it's true. It's prune soda. Prune soda. I'm not kidding. No, 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 no. no. Now, hear me out. You're working for whatever company that's creating flavors of soda. And so you've got an open mind and you try this and you try asparagus soda and you try Brussels sprout soda and you're trying everything and nothing's working. The taste tests come back and they're like, Bleh. and so you think, hey, what about prunes? Prune soda, that's got a nice flavor. If you don't think about the fact that it's prunes, because a lot of people don't like prunes. So they put the prunes in flavoring in the soda. They give it in a blind taste test and everybody loves it. And they're thinking, great, we've got a hit. Great, it's going to be the new ABC Soda Company's prune soda. We can't call it prune soda. Nobody will buy it. So what are we going to do? We'll just make up a name that has nothing to do with the flavor. We'll call it Dr. Pepper. Trust me. Get some prune juice. Get some Dr. Pepper. Try them both. I'm telling you, the Jay Sheldon conspiracy theory says Dr. Pepper is prune-flavored soda. You try that next time. Trust me. <laughs> All right. Um, <laughs> seriously, it's prune soda. I'm telling you, you try it again. I'm sorry. If you're in Malaysia, you can't really try it because I don't think we have Dr. Pepper. I'm going to look next time I go to one of those imported grocery stores. But um, <laughs> but I don't I don't think we have Dr. Pepper here. We should. It would be a hit. Just don't call it prune soda. Oh. All right, we're talking about junk food, aren't we? Well, that leads me really nicely into the beginning of our online review tonight. And uh, this first one is an amazing, amazing story. Are you a fan of junk food? In particular, Cheetos? Mmm. Cheetos are available here in Malaysia. They're kind of like what is the mo one of the most popular junk foods, which is those cheese rings. I forget what they called. I have a pack of them downstairs in the kitchen. They're these little round, orangey, yellow rings. They're absolute crap food. They're, I'm sure, highly preserved, and they're likely not very good for you. But like everything that falls into that category, they're hugely popular as a snack. They're like cheese rings. And they're very similar to Cheetos. Cheetos you can find here. However, if they have a new flavor, which is 
a kick-ass hit. It's uh, it's smoking hot Cheetos, something like that. People love them. They have become an enormous hit, and you can thank a janitor for the fact that you are able to eat smoking hot Cheetos. Seriously. Check out this story. A janitor making four bucks an hour walked into a Fortune 500 company's boardroom. Shaking, he took a seat opposite the CEO, and he said, So, I have an idea. Now, no doubt you've been covered. This, by the way, is from uh, Upworthy.com. A tip of the hat to Upworthy.com. You can check out the article there and all their great stuff. You probably had your fingers covered in that hot Cheeto dust on more than one occasion, especially during this lockdown. Um, You can thank a Latino janitor or former janitor, I should say, for your ability to do that. As it turns out, the idea to introduce a hot variety of Cheetos was the result of an innovative janitor who knew how to target niche market and pivot production plans. So the next time you think you need an MBA or experience on the board of a Fortune 500 company, remember the name Richard Montinez. Richard Montinez, uh, in a viral tweet, uh, this user, uh, Ankith Harathi, explained Martinez's story from mopping floors to sweeping the market. He dreaded school. He was barely able to speak English. He'd cry to his mother as she was getting him ready for class. And when asked, all the other students in his class would eagerly shout out their dream job. Astronaut, doctor, race car driver. But Richard had nothing to say. There was no dream where I came from. He was from Cucamonga Valley in California and shared a one-room cinder block hut with 14 members of his family at the time. Let me show you what that uh, place looked like. There you go. Richard Martinez in Cucamonga Valley. Dreaded school, barely able to sing, uh, speak English, cry to his mother. This is... Uh, This is something about what uh, Cucamonga Valley looks like. Anyway, dropped out of school in the fourth grade, took up a bunch of odd jobs at farms and factories, and he found himself in the year of 1976 in the Frito-Lay plant, which was just down the road from his house. Four bucks an hour was more than he'd ever made before. And as he was getting ready for his first day of work, his grandfather pulled him aside One of his jobs was to mop the floor. And his grandfather said to him, You make sure that floor shines, and you let them know that a Montanez mopped it. So he made it his mission to be the best janitor ever employed by Frito-Lay. He would, during his time off, learn about the different companies' products, manufacturing process, marketing. On some occasions he would even accompany salespeople to watch them sell the Frito-Lay's uh, products. And uh, let me just, there we go. This is, uh, this is the floor that Montanez, I guess it's Montanez, uh mopped. <laughs> and uh, where he worked at the Frito-Lay factory. Anyway, uh, in the mid-80s, the company began to struggle. The then-CEO, Roger Enrico, announced the Act Like an Owner initiative, which empowered all 300,000 employees at Frito-Lay to work more creatively and efficiently. Of course, Montanez listened, decided to act like an owner, and he then proceeded to have a conversation with the owner, which went something like this. Mr. Enrico's office, who is this? Uh, Richard Montanez in California. You're the vice president overseeing California? No, I work at the Rancho Cucamonga plant. Oh, so you're the vice president of operations? Uh, No, I work inside the plant. You're the manager? No, I'm the janitor. Well, two weeks later, he entered the boardroom, took a moment to catch his breath, and then started telling them what he had learned about Frito-Lay 
and the idea he'd been working on. This is Mr. Montanez up on the screen now. And just like that, the CEO who loved the initiative told Montanez to prepare a presentation and set up a meeting in two weeks. Janitor went to the library, picked up a book on marketing strategy, started prepping. Two weeks later, walks into the boardroom and told the company's biggest executives about his idea. He said, I saw there was no product that catered to Latinos. Latino market was ready to explode. Frito-Lay didn't have any products that targeted them. Inspired by elote, Mexican street corn covered in spices, Richard had created his own snack and he pulled out a hundred plastic baggies. He'd taken Cheetos from the factory and coated them in his own mix of spices. And um, the CEO said, uh, the room went silent. Everybody uh, tried it. And the CEO said, put that mop away. You're coming with us. As we now know, Flamin' Hot Cheetos went on to become one of the company's most successful products and amassed a $20 million fortune. Not bad for a boy from Cucamonga. There he is. <laughs> that is an amazing, amazing story. $20 million fortune. And Richard is now a vice president. How fantastic is that? That is, that is insane. That is such a great story. So whatever your job is, it doesn't matter. I stocked shelves at a grocery store, Utzler's Country Store in West Cornwall, Connecticut. But I was so proud of those shelves and I made sure all the products were lined up just straight. And just like Richard, he made sure that that floor that he mopped, shined, was shown like no other floor. I made sure those products were lined up at Utler's store exactly right, and they all had price stickers on them. Whatever your job is, you do it the best you can, and who knows, like Richard, you have an idea? Take a chance. Why not? You never know. These things work out sometimes. <laughs> what a great story. I see the uh, bots are back at it again. So, of course, we all know the bots and how to ignore them. I don't know why in this day and age anyone thinks bots do any good or anybody is stupid enough to click on their links. But, hey, there you go. They found us. No problem. All right. The other thing we, uh, we promised to talk about tonight, this is from Popular Mechanics. And because Popular Mechanics can do some really stupid things like their idiotic 9-11 theories. Um, I don't like sharing their stuff, but this was a fascinating article, credit where credit's due. So uh, popularmechanics.com is where you'll find it in their technology division. It is weird and unusual military bases. Check this out. Trust me, some of these are weird. And by the way, if you are listening to the podcast, I'll describe what I'm showing on screen, but you really have to go to rumble.com slash I'm not wearing pants and check out our show. Please subscribe while you're there. But rumble.com I'm not wearing pants is where you can find uh, the visual portion of our podcast. This is the Ericsson Air Station in Shemya in the Aleutian Islands. It was once a ballistic missile radar home in the 70s it has an incredibly outdated system, but believe it or not, it's still in use, while the airstrip serves as an active emergency landing zone. Out in the middle of absolutely nowhere. How about this one? The Kwajalein Atoll in the Marshall Islands. This is one of the largest coral atolls in the world, and the United States has a base there. It was opened during World War II, and apparently still in existence. For what reason, I have no idea. But then again, it's probably above my pay grade. Uh, Fort Detrick is in Maryland. We all hear actually about Fort Detrick. What started as Camp Detrick, believe it or not. In the 1940s, it was uh, just an, an army camp. It is now a fort, and it turned into the long-standing home for the uh, U.S. military. 
what used to be Camp Dietrich and is now known affectionately as Fort Dietrich. How about the Olives? Oh, I'll never pronounce this right. Olivesvern Naval Base in Norway. Check this out. This is some weird canal thing going through. Uh, originally, it was constructed as a Cold War naval base, and Nor Norway sold the site and eventually leased it to the Russians. And they now use that space for research. Mm, research. Now the U.S. Navy wants a piece of it. So there you go. That is the Olives Olivesvern Naval Base. What a strange looking. You got to see the visuals on this. If you're listening on the podcast, check out rumble.com. How about the Naval Magazine Island, Indian Island? That is in Washington State. How weird, off the West Coast in the U.S. A small island off the coast of Washington State, the U.S. Navy purchased land on Indian Island in 1939. Nowadays, they'll probably rename it because it's politically incorrect. Uh, anyway, it is one of the smallest bases in the Navy and most recently named Naval... Naval what? Naval Magazine Indian Island. It serviced naval ships as the last stop before the Pacific Ocean uh, ever since. The final remaining deep water ordnance facility on the West Coast, that is this place, without access restrictions, a small island helps ships like as large as Nimitz-class aircraft carriers load and offload ammunition. Uh, it has more than 100 magazines for weapon storage located underground in doomed mounds, and every ship leaving the northwest region gets supplied by the islands that has the ability to service everything from Coast Guard patrol boats to submarines to aircraft carriers. That is cool. Wow. How about this one? This is from uh, the India and Pakistan border. It's the Siachen Glacier. Um, India, Pakistan, long, of course, have disputed the ownership of the glacier. It's about a four decades plus home of the Indian Army, and it's located at over 21,000 feet. The Siachen Glacier is not your run-of-the-mill military outpost. Uh, both India and Pakistan have disputed the site, although the Indian Army has a base and controlling interest. Windstorms, snowstorms, thin oxygen, and frigid temperatures. Some of the features of this wonderful military base. Not only is the site expensive to operate, but it is also very costly in terms of human sacrifice. Does not look like the kind of place I would want to be stationed for any length of time. <laughs> Mount Weather in Virginia. Have you ever heard of that? Well, not many people had, actually. The public first heard about this, which is now run by Homeland Security, back in 1974. But it's been around a lot longer than that. The weather history dating to the 1800s. And it was used during World War II. It has an ample shroud of intrigue with an origin story that really pretty much nobody knows about. It was born as a weather station in the 1800s, became a camp during World War II, and uh, the, there's a huge underground portion of this facility that nobody really knows what's going on down there, but it is run by the Department of Homeland Security. Uh, they believe it houses operations center, high-level government officials for probably continuity of government during emergency time. Uh, wow, fascinating. Here's one from Russia. This is the Kapustin Yar. One of the Soviet Union's first rocket and missile test sites. In addition to testing early ballistic missiles, Kapustin Yar was the site of some of the Soviet Union's first suborbital animal flights. For example, 1966, the secret base was turned into a cosmodrome, and it is still operating today. The Soviets launched a number of dogs into Earth's atmosphere back in the 60s, including the pups Kusachka and Ovatsnyaya. The missile test site, also known as the location of five atmospheric nuclear tests. Oh, so that's fun. 
Here's one from North Carolina, a former 1940s military site known for the Osama bin Laden house mock-up, which was built on site for training the Navy SEALs. Interesting. Cool. And, of course, no weird Navy ba- no weird military base report would be complete without the good old Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. That's been around since 1917. Wow. Well, uh, we are, or we're supposed to, by the end of this month, and the end of this month is, for all intents here, have a big report from the Congress of the U.S., or the Senate, I believe, on unidentified flying objects, revealing a lot of the stuff that the government has kept secret for a long time. I follow that topic very closely, and I haven't seen where this report has come out. It's due by the, I believe it's the end of June. I thought it was, but again, so far, not much of anything new. Reverse engineering, of course, it always sounds so cryptic. Uh, The Wright-Patterson Air Force Base outside of Dayton, Ohio, has been reverse engineering aircraft for a lot of its 103-year history, especially during the Cold War. In fact, Hangar 18 has a tie to the Roswell crash, and uh, conspiracy buffs enjoy the intrigue and the strangeness of good old Wright-Patterson. Although, you know, that is not at all what I thought Wright-Patterson would look like. I thought it would be, maybe this is from some weird angle, because... To me, it would have been much more of a buildings and airstrip sort of place. But yeah, that's a aerial shot of Wright-Patterson where so many weird things, including items from the Roswell crash, wound up being stored. Hmm. All right, around the world and now back to home again. John, <laughs> oh, I love the name of our show. Job candidate fails Skype interview for not wearing pants. Yes. (laughs) Oh, man. This is from RamsgateandHackett.com. Tip of the hat to them for their uh, article. But, um, yeah, this uh, this is the fellow. This is from Toronto. Bruce Gordon, who's the CEO of Magnus Enterprises, said, quote, We're looking for someone who crosses their T's and dots their I's. A man who does not wear pants during a job interview gives us little faith in his ability to do so. <laughs> End quote. Anyway, they, he was commenting on the decision to turn down Timothy Somerville for a position as marketing coordinator with the multi-million dollar company. The job interview was conducted via Skype as Magnus Enterprise is located in Toronto and Mr. Somerville lives in Vancouver, planned on relocating if he was offered the job. According to the hiring manager, during the interview, Mr. Gordon was extremely impressed with Timothy's credentials and casual confidence. That is until the end of the interview when Mr. Somerville stood up briefly there's your problem. If you're not wearing pants, don't stand up. Anyway, he revealed to his interviews that he was not wearing pants. And to make matters worse, sources claim he was wearing leopard print jockeys. <laughs> yes. I'll have to try that. A pair of good old leopard print jockeys. <laughs> Uh, Mr. Gordon said the purpose of the interview was to assess his people skills and his personality to determine if he would be a good fit for the team. After seeing him in his drawers, I'm afraid that's not the case. Well, you know what? That sucks. First of all, what does leopard skin jockey shorts have to do with his personality and his abilities? I'm quite sure if he came to the office and you gave him the job, he would be wearing pants. Nowadays, we don't have to wear pants. Isn't that the point? (laughs) I'm not wearing pants. (laughs) Unbelievable. All right. I (laughs) I got one more for you. Very quick one, but it's really nice. It's very inspirational. And a good friend, 
It's a public post, so I'm not giving away any secrets. Uh, Zahari Mohammed posted this, and I thought it was so nice. It is a picture of what I believe is a Ramadan tree. Let me uh, let me move. There we go. Move that over a little bit so you can see it better. And uh, if you notice, I'm not sure you can actually see this, but let me read the, the caption first, because that's the important part. And then I'll show you the picture up close. It says, I'm just a gardener in this orchard. Yeah. This is the first time the owner tasted after about 30 years, ever since I took care of this orchard, because it's full of monkeys. What I did was I talked to the monkeys aloud, without them being around, of course. I told them, you can eat all you want, but just leave some for me. Please take the uppermost parts where I can't reach. And then he says, funny, isn't it, how that works? I don't know if you can see this or not. It's, yeah, it doesn't exactly come out no matter what I do with this. But if you see this, what looks like to me a rambutan tree, in the actual original photograph, the top of the rambutan tree, the part that's missing on this clip, is completely empty of fruit, where the monkeys have stolen it. And all down below here is covered in fruit, where they haven't touched it. So apparently, appealing to monkeys whether they're in the room or not, works quite well. <laughs> uh, nice job, Zahari. I like that. It's a great, great story. And apparently the monkeys listened. Not bad. <laughs> All right, we got a lot more coming up, and uh, that includes this remarkable, remarkable book. We start a new book. We finished up... Um, we finished up The Little Prince on Saturday night. And so tonight we begin a brand new book. These books come to us from the Gutenberg Project. They are in the public domain. They're copyright free. And uh, unfortunately, that's the only kind of books we're able to read here because otherwise it's considered a public performance and we would get copyright strikes. But these come from Gutenberg.org. I can't encourage you strongly enough to check out Gutenberg Project online. You'll find all kinds of amazing books. You can download the ones we've read. There's hundreds and hundreds of titles there. They're all in the public domain. It's all free. And they're in different formats, however you like reading your books. One of the big things I set out to do when I started this stream was to encourage people to read by reading to you. By reading to you, I hope that you will remember what it's like to read and go back to reading uh, and teach and encourage your kids to read. Uh, we always pepper our streams with a little cute or funny thing parents have done to encourage their kids to read. And um, that's part of why we do this. In addition to the fact that I love reading. So um, we've done a lot of books. They are very different from their uh, film versions, including this one, you'll find out soon. And uh, the other thing is that the chapters are very long. So with The Jungle Book, Rudyard Kipling's book was originally published back in 1894. Um, the chapters are long. Some of them I will have to break down into part one, part two. So we're going to begin that tonight. Uh, before we do, I just encourage you once again to check us out at rumble.com slash I'm not wearing pants. Please subscribe to the video version of our show. Also, set up a reminder, like our page on Facebook, YouTube, twitch.tv, I'm not wearing pants, uh, or J. Sheldon, no pants. You'll find our merchandise there. And uh, you'll also find us on Patreon. Look up J. Sheldon. You'll find Patreon there and you can help support the show. So from 1894, tonight we begin The Jungle Book by Rudyard Kipling. Mowgli's Brothers. Now Ron the kite brings home the night that Mang the bat sets free. The herds are shut in byre and hut, for loosed till dawn are we. 
This is the hour of pride and power, talon and tush and claw. Oh, hear the call, good hunting all, that keeps the jungle law. Night Song in the Jungle It was seven o'clock of a very warm evening in the Sinoe Hills when Father Wolf woke up from his day's rest, scratched himself, yawned, and spread out his paws one after the other to get rid of that sleepy feeling in their tips. Mother Wolf lay with her big gray nose dropped across her four tumbling, squealing cubs, and the moon shone into the mouth of the cave where they all lived. Arr, said Father Wolf, it's time to hunt again. He was going to spring downhill when a little shadow with a bushy tail crossed the threshold and whined, Good luck go with you, O chief of the wolves, and good luck and strong white teeth go with noble children, that they may never forget the hungry in this world. It was the jackal, Tabaki, the dish licker, and the wolves of India despise Tabaki, because he runs about making mischief, and telling tales, and eating rags and pieces of leather from the village rubbish heaps. But they are afraid of him, too, because Tabaki, more than anyone else in the jungle, is apt to go mad. And then he forgets that he was ever afraid of anyone and runs through the forest, biting everything in his way. Even the tiger runs and hides when little Tabaki goes mad, for madness is the most disgraceful thing that can overtake a wild creature. We call it hydrophobia, but they call it diwani, the madness, and run. Enter then and look, said Father Wolf stiffly, but there is no food here. For a wolf, no, said Tabaki, but... For so mean a person as myself, a dry bone is a good feast. Who are we, the Gidor Log, the Jackal people, to pick and choose? He scuttled to the back of the cave, where he found the bone of a buck with some meat on it, and sat cracking the end merrily. All thanks for the good meal, he said, licking his lips. How beautiful are the noble children, how large are their eyes, and so young, too. Indeed, I might have remembered the children of kings are men from the beginning. Now, Tabaki knew as well that anyone else, that there is nothing so unlucky as to compliment children to their faces. It pleased him to see Mother and Father Wolf look uncomfortable. Tabaki sat still rejoicing in the mischief that he'd made. And then he said spitefully, Shere Khan, the big one, has shifted his hunting grounds. He will hunt among these hills for the next moon, so he's told me. Shere Khan was the tiger that lived near the Wangunga River, twenty miles away. He has no right Father Wolf began angrily. By the law of the jungle, he has no right to change his quarters without due warning. He will frighten every head of game within ten miles. And I, I have to kill for two these days. His mother did not call him Lungri, the lame one, for nothing, said Mother Wolf quietly. He has been lame in one foot from his birth. That is why he has only killed cattle. Now the villagers of Wainkugia, Kunga, are angry with him, and he's come here to make our villagers angry. They will scour the jungle for him when he is far away, and we and our children must run when the grass is set alight. Indeed, we are very grateful to Shere Khan. Shall I tell him of your gratitude? said Tabuki. Out! snapped Father Wolf. Out and hunt with thy master. Thou hast done harm enough for one night. I go, said Tabuki quietly. 
Ye can hear Shere Khan below in the thickets. I might have saved myself the message. Father Wolf listened, and below in the valley that ran down to a little river, he heard the dry, angry, snarling, sing-song whine of a tiger who has caught nothing and does not care if all the jungle knows it. The fool, said Father Wolf, to begin a night's work with that noise. Does he think that our buck like his fat wankunga bullocks? Hish! It's neither bullocks nor buck he intends to hunt tonight, said Mother Wolf. It is man. The wine had changed to a sort of humming purr that seemed to come from every quarter of the compass. It was the noise that bewilders woodcutters and gypsies sleeping in the open, and makes them run sometimes into the very mouth of the tiger. Man, said Father Wolf, showing all his white teeth. Fog! Are there not enough beetles and frogs in the tanks that he must eat man? And on our ground, too. The law of the jungle, which never orders anything without a reason, forbids every beast to eat man except when he is killing to show his children how to kill. And then he must hunt outside the hunting grounds of his pack or tribe. The real reason for this is that man-killing means, sooner or later, the arrival of white men on elephants with guns and hundreds of brown men with gongs and rockets and torches. And then everyone in the jungle suffers. The reason the beasts give among themselves is that man is the weakest and the most defenseless of all living things, and it is unsportsmanlike to touch him. They say, too, and it is true, that man-eaters become mangy and lose their teeth. The purr grew louder and ended in a full-throated arrrr of the lion's charge. Then there was an how an howl, an untigerish howl, from Shere Khan. He has missed, said Mother Wolf. What is it? Father Wolf ran out a few paces and heard Shere Khan muttering and mumbling savagely as he tumbled about in the scrub. The fool has had no more sense than to jump at a woodcutter's campfire and has burned his feet, Father Wolf said with a grunt. Tabaki is with him. Something is coming uphill, said Mother Wolf, twitching one ear. Get ready. The bushes rustled a little in the thicket, and Father Wolf dropped with his hunches under him, ready for his leap. Then, if you'd been watching, you would have seen the most wonderful thing in the world. The wolf checked in mid-spring. He made his bound before he saw what it was he was jumping at, and then he tried to stop himself. The result was that he shot straight up into the air for four or five feet, landing almost where he left the ground. Man, he snapped, a man-cub, look! Directly in front of him, holding on by a low branch, stood a naked brown baby who could just walk as soft and as dimpled as a little Adam as ever came into the wolf's cave at night. He looked up into Father Wolf's face and laughed. Is that a man-cub? said Mother Wolf. I've never seen one. Bring it here. A wolf accustomed to moving his own cubs can, if necessary, mouth an egg without breaking it. And though Father Wolf's jaws closed right on the child's back, not a tooth even scratched the skin as he laid it down among the cubs. How little, how naked, and how bold, 
said Mother Wolf softly. The baby was pushing his way between the cubs to get close to the warm hide. A high! He is taking his meal with the others. And so this is a man's cub. Now, was there ever a wolf that could boast of a man's cub among her children? I have heard now and again of such a thing, but never in our pack or in my time, said Father Wolf. He is altogether without hair, and I could kill him with a touch of my foot. But see, he looks up, and he's not afraid. The moonlight was blocked out of the mouth of the cave for Shere Khan's great square head and shoulders were thrust into the cave. Tabaki behind him was squeaking, My lord, my lord, it went in there. Shere Khan does us great honor, said Father Wolf, but his eyes were very angry. What does Shere Khan need? My quarry. A man-cub went this way, said Shere Khan. Its parents have run off. Give it to me. Shere Khan had jumped at the woodcutter's campfire, as Father Wolf had said, and was furious from the pain of his burned feet. But Father Wolf knew that the mouth of the cave was too narrow for the tiger to come in. Even where he was, Shere Khan's shoulders and forepaws were cramped for want of room, as a man's would be if he tried to fight in a barrel. The wolves are free people, said Father Wolf. They take orders from the head of the pack, and not from any striped cattle killer. The man-cub is ours, to kill if we choose. Ye choose, and ye do not choose. What talk is this of choosing? By the bull that I killed, am I to stand nosing into your dog's den for my fair dues? It is I, Shere Khan, who speak. The tiger's roar filled the cave with thunder. Mother Wolf shook herself clear of the cubs and sprang forward her eyes like two green moons in the darkness, facing the blazing eyes of Shere Khan. And it is I, Raksha the demon, who answers. The man's cub is mine, Lungri, mine to me. He shall not be killed. He shall live to run with the pack and hunt with the pack, and in the end, look, you hunter of little naked cubs, frog-eater, fish-killer, he shall hunt thee. Now get hence, or by the Sambhur that I killed, I eat no starved cattle, back thou goest to thy mother, burned beast of the jungle, lamer than ever thou canst come into the world. Go! Father Wolf looked on amazed. He'd almost forgotten the days when he won Mother Wolf in a fair fight from five other wolves when she ran in the pack and was not called the demon for compliment's sake. Shere Khan might have faced Father Wolf, but he could not stand up against Mother Wolf, for he knew that where he was she had all the advantage of the ground and would fight to the death. So he backed out of the cave, growling, and when he was clear, he shouted, Each dog barks in his own yard. We will see what the pack will say to this fostering of man-cubs. The cub is mine, and to my teeth he will come in the end, O oh, bush-tailed thieves. Mother Wolf threw herself down, panting among the cubs, and Father Wolf said to her gravely, Shere Khan speaks this much truth. The cub must be shown to the pack. Wilt thou still keep him, Mother? Keep him, she gasped. He came naked by night, alone and very hungry. 
yet he was not afraid. Look, he's pushed one of my babies to one side already, and that lame butcher would have killed him and would have run off to the Wangunga while the villagers here hunted through all of our lairs in revenge. Keep him? Assuredly I will keep him. Lie still, little frog. O thou Mowgli, for Mowgli the frog I will call thee. The time will come when thou wilt hunt Shere Khan as he has hunted thee. But what will our pack say, said Father Wolf? The law of the jungle lays down very clearly that any wolf may, when he marries, withdraw from the pack he belongs to. But as soon as his cubs are old enough to stand on their own feet, he must bring them to the pack council, which is generally held once a month at the full moon, in order that the other wolves may identify them. After that inspection, the cubs are free to run where they please, and until they have killed their first buck, no excuse is accepted if a grown wolf of the pack kills one of them. The punishment is death where the murderers can be found. And if you think for a minute, you will see that this must be so. Father Wolf waited till his cubs could run a little, and then on the night of the pack meeting took them and Mowgli and the mother wolf to the council rock, a hilltop covered with stone and boulders where a hundred wolves could hide. Akela, the great gray lone wolf, who led all the pack by strength and cunning, lay out at full length on his rock, and below him sat forty or more wolves of every size and color, from badger-colored veterans who could handle a buck alone to a young black three-year-olds who thought they could. The lone wolf who'd led them for a year now had fallen twice into a wolf trap in his youth, and once he had beaten and left for dead, so he knew the manners and customs of men. There was very little talking at the rock. The cubs tumbled over each other in the center of the circle where their mothers and fathers sat, and now and again a senior wolf would go quietly up to a cub, look at him carefully, and return to his place on noiseless feet. Sometimes a mother would push her cub far out into the moonlight to be sure that he had not been overlooked. Akela from his rock would cry, Ye know the law, ye know the law, look well, O wolves, and the anxious mothers would take up the call, Look, look well, O wolves. At last the mother wolf's neck bristles lifted as the time came, Father Wolf pushed Mowgli the Frog, as they called him, into the center, where he sat laughing and playing with some pebbles that glistened in the moonlight. Akela never raised his head from his paws, but went on with the monotonous cry, Look well! A muffled roar came up from behind the rocks, the voice of Shere Khan crying. The cub is mine. Give him to me. What have the free people to do with a man-cub? Akela never even twitched his ears. All he said was, Look well, O wolves. What have the free people to do with the orders of any save the free people? Look well. There was a chorus of deep growls and a young wolf in his fourth year flung back Shere Khan's question to Akela. What have the free people to do with a man-cub? Now the law of the jungle lays down that if there is any dispute as to the right of a cub to be accepted by the pack, he must be spoken for by at least two members of the pack who are not his mother and father. Who speaks for this cub? said Akela. Among the free people, who speaks? There was no answer, and Mother Wolf got ready for what she knew would be her last fight. 
if things came to fighting. Then, the only other creature who was allowed at the pack council, Baloo, the sleepy brown bear who teaches the wolf cubs the law of the jungle, old Baloo, who can come and go where he pleases, because he eats only nuts and roots and honey, rose upon his hindquarters and grunted. The man-cub, the man-cub, he said, I speak for the man-cub. There's no harm in a man's cub. I have no gift of words, but I speak the truth. Let him run with the pack, be entered with the others. I myself will teach him. We need another, said Akela. Baloo has spoken, and he is our teacher for the young cubs. But who speaks besides Baloo? A black shadow dropped down into the circle. It was Bagheera, the black panther, inky black all over, but with the panther markings showing up in certain lights, like the pattern of watered silk. Everybody knew Bagheera, and nobody dared to cross his path, for he was as cunning as Tabaki, as bold as the wild buffalo, and as reckless as the wounded elephant. But he had a voice as soft as wild honey dripping from a tree, and a skin softer than down. O oh, Akira, and ye the free people, he purred, I have no right in your assembly, but the law of the jungle says that if there is a doubt which is not a killing matter in regard to a new cub, the life of that cub may be bought at a price. And the law does not say who may or may not pay that price. Am I right? Good, good, said the young wolves, who are always hungry. Listen to Bagheera. The cub can be bought for a price. It is the law. Knowing that, I have no right to speak here. I ask your leave. Speak then, cried twenty voices. To kill a naked cub is shame. Besides, he may make better sport for you when he's grown. Baloo has spoken on his behalf. And now to Baloo's word, I will add one bull and a fat one. Newly killed, not half a mile from here, if ye will accept the man's cub according to the law. Is it difficult? There was a clamor of scores of voices saying, What matter? He will die in the winter rains. He will scorch in the sun. What harm can a naked frog do us? Let him run with the pack. Where is the bull, Bagheera? Let him be accepted. And then came Akela's deep bay, crying, Look well, look well, O wolves. Mowgli was still deeply interested in the pebbles, and he didn't notice when the wolves came and looked at him one by one. At last they all went down the hill for the dead bull, and only Akela, Bagheera, and Baloo, and Mowgli's own wolves were left. Shere Khan roared still in the night, for he was very angry that Mowgli had not been handed over to him. I roar well, said Bahira, under his whiskers, for the time will come when this naked thing will make thee roar to another tune, or I know nothing of man. It was well done, said Akela. Men and their cubs are very wise. He may be a help in time. Truly, a help in time of need, for none can hope to lead the pack forever, said Bagheera. Akela said nothing. He was thinking of the time that comes to every leader of every pack, when his strength goes from him and he gets feebler and feebler, and till at last he is killed by the wolves, and a new leader comes up to be killed in his turn. 
take him away, he said to Father Wolf, and train him as befits one of the free people. And that is how Mowgli was entered into the Sionee Wolf Pack for the price of a bull and Baloo's good word. And that's where we're going to leave it tonight, about halfway through chapter one. Wow! <laughs> a, uh, a bit different, as I promised, from, from the film. But, uh, wow, very... There we go, I'm back. <laughs> very, very interesting book. Uh, the Jungle Book, we started the first half of, uh, of chapter one. Fantastic, that was cool. Hope you enjoyed it. We will continue on with chapter one on our next stream, which will be coming up on Wednesday night. Hope to see you then, 10 o'clock Malaysian time. Um, that's going to do it for us. Thanks so much for the listen and the watch, wherever you may be, in our podcasts. If you want to support the stream, it's patreon.com slash Sheldon. You can find me over there and uh, sign up and help. Thank you. Until next time, folks, I will see you again on Wednesday. I'm Jay Sheldon. And I'm not wearing pants. Good night.